Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been a Simpsons writer for 32 years. In my spare time, I visit the world's hotspots and hellholes, so you won't have to. Welcome to the podcast that answers the question, what am I doing here? Today, What Am I Doing Here is proud to present The Toilet Episode. And now your host, Mike Reese. Thank you, Trevor. Today I'm going to start with an important bit of information, something no tour guide will ever tell you and no travel book will ever print. When you take a big trip, you don't poop. You'll pee, but you won't poop. When you're traveling with a group, no one in the group will poop. Once you're aware of this, you can relax. You can even be smug about it. Using the toilet. Ah, yes. That's something I used to do myself back in my younger days, of course. (laughs) In time, the problem corrects itself. Generally, after six or seven days, when you've reached maximum storage capacity. Before you know it, you'll be crapping like a native. Bully for you. But why does this even happen? It's simple grade school evolutionary psychoanthropology. According to Professor Ross E. Forp, the act of defecation puts you in a vulnerable position. Your pants are down, you're squatting, and you're alone. You're an ideal target for predatory animals or hostile outsiders. So our hominid ancestors evolved to shut down the poop reflex whenever they found themselves in an unfamiliar land. Actually, I made that all up. There is no Professor Ross E. Forp. Ross E. Forp is just Professor spelled backwards. But I think it's a pretty good theory. And it is related to a genuine phenomenon, one I'm sure you've noticed yourself. The sound of rushing water makes you pee. It's the reason Niagara Falls has more toilets than any other national park. And it's rooted in science. Real science by actual scientists. The sound of rushing water convinces your brain that other people are peeing around you. It's safe for you to do it too, and the sooner the better. Once you're on vacation and it's all systems go, (laughs) you will need to use foreign toilets. Be warned that in Cuba, every toilet is broken. Every single one. The Cuban flag should have a broken toilet on it. They should put one on their money. We were leaving a restaurant in Cuba when we spotted a busted toilet in the alley. Cracked ceramic, large chunks missing, stripped of all its metal hardware. There it is, honey, I told my wife. The brokenest toilet in Cuba. It's so busted they finally threw it away. She replied, Or maybe they're getting ready to install it. In Europe, you'll encounter a different obstacle. The bathroom attendant. This is a woman. It's always a woman, generally old and bitter at the hand life has dealt her. She guards the entrance to a public bathroom like a troll in a fairy tale. To get in, you have to give her a small local coin. If you don't have one, you must give her a large local coin. And they don't give change. Your money pays the salaries of the people who keep the bathroom clean. But once you get inside, you realize the bathroom is not clean. It's filthy and there are always several inches of water on the floor. Too late. You paid your money, no refunds. For an additional fee, you can also purchase toilet paper because there's none in the bathroom either. The bathroom attendant will dole that out in meager squares as if she were dispensing original Lincoln letters. And folks, you're still in Western society. Just wait till you get to the third world. 
For most people on Earth, North Africans, Middle Easterners, all of Asia, a toilet is just a ceramic hole in the ground. You straddle this thing, one foot on either side, standing on two corrugated bricks. These are like the starting blocks that Olympic racers use, because once you're done, you want to sprint out of there like you were Usain Bolt. Once again, you'll find no toilet paper. Instead, your tiny stall will be crowded with a giant trash can full of water, a garden hose with a kitchen spray nozzle, and a plastic pitcher. I've used these toilets for years and have never figured out how all this equipment is supposed to work. In Africa, you'll find abundant Western-style toilets. But no toilet seats. Even in the finest hotels, you'll see beautiful johns with brass fixtures and wood cabinetry, but no seats. It sounds like the title of a just terrible thriller. Who is stealing the toilet seats of Africa? And how are they stealing them? Do they slip them under their clothes? Is this why they wear dashikis? And why are they stealing them? Is there a resale market? Who sells used toilet seats? And who would want to buy one? Or maybe they steal them for personal use. But why? Did they buy a toilet that had no seat? Or did a friend steal their toilet seat? And is that a friend you care to have? Africa, truly a land of mysteries. When you do need a toilet overseas, it's very hard to ask for one. The British, who seem so refined, go right for it. Where's the toilet, mate? Good for them. By the way, I used the public restroom in London, right across the street from Big Ben. As I entered, I saw a homeless man using the hot air hand dryer to, well, to blow his wiener. Several hours later, after a tour of Parliament, I went back to use that bathroom. My wife asked, Was your friend in there? I said, My friend? Denise has a very loose sense of what constitutes male bonding. Anyway, when I ask for a toilet overseas, I rely on American euphemisms. These completely baffle foreigners. The men's room, the restroom, the washroom, the bathroom. They all sound like great rooms, none of which contain toilets. And the line, I need to use the little boy's room, makes you sound like Michael Jackson. Hee <laughs> hee! I've heard some great euphemisms over the years. I have to pick some flowers. I need to visit the old house down the lane. And my favorite, used by members of the French resistance, I have to telephone Hitler. By the way, in researching this, and I do research this, I learned that Hitler's toilet is now in New Jersey. Hasn't it suffered enough? There will come times in your travels where the toilet is not just a convenience. It's a necessity. If you travel long enough, you will get sick with what my wife calls tummy trouble. What she means is diarrhea, but I don't want to keep saying that and you don't want to hear it. So instead of saying diarrhea, I'll use a sound alike. Diane Keaton. The first time I got sick was in Tanzania. I have no idea what caused it. Maybe it was that ice cube they put in my soda or that baked potato I ate off the sidewalk. It was in foil. Whatever the cause, I was suddenly overcome with Diane Keaton. My tour guide drove frantically through the countryside trying to find medical help. Along the way, I made emergency stops wherever I could. Gas stations, the middle of a cornfield, and once, I'm not really proud of this, in a half-finished building using a toilet that wasn't hooked up to anything. Eventually, he got me to a medical clinic that had clearly been a bicycle shop in the not-too-distant past. But whatever. 
A doctor quickly saw me and handed me a teeny tiny green pill. Within three minutes, I was completely cured. I don't just mean no more Diane Keaton. I mean I felt good enough to win the Preakness without a horse. The cost of this doctor's appointment, including medicine, 72 cents. The next time I got sick, it was completely my fault. I was visiting Syria, a country known for the destruction and vast human toll of its civil war. But before that, it was the most welcoming place I'd ever been. Of the 134 countries I've been to, I found the Syrians the finest people on earth. I wish we could populate the entire planet with them. I was so enamored of these people that I joined a group of strangers for dinner at a cafe. Then I started drinking water from a pitcher on the table. The Syrians tried to stop me, but I wouldn't listen. I was operating under the shaky logic that if the people are so nice, how bad could their water be? I drank the entire pitcher. If you're thinking, I'm an idiot, well, you're right. I mean, who else would vacation in Syria? The next day I discovered that the friendliness of the Syrians does not extend to the microbial level. I was racked with explosive Diane Keaton. I pooped all over the Roman ruins at Palmyra. These were a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They were, until I got there. We were on a group tour of Thailand when our guide pulled over to buy us a roadside treat, sticky rice. It's a mixture of white rice, milk, and sugar, all steamed inside a bamboo tube. It was delicious, but within hours, 40 of us on the bus were afflicted with Diane Keaton in an Oscar-worthy performance. It hit me that night as we were strolling the streets of Chiang Mai. I started sweating profusely. I stripped off my shirt, something I never do in public and rarely do in private. Soon I became delirious, and everyone in Thailand became my friend. I began shaking hands with passing strangers, saying, What's up, Jar Jar? How you doing, Jar Jar? Stop being charming, my wife pleaded. I can't, I replied. Eventually, she got me back to the hotel. Lucky for me, she skipped the sticky rice. My wife watches what she eats and avoids carbs entirely. This has given her the trim figure of Annie Hall star, Diarrhea. Enough cheap comedy. Let's put all those toilets behind us. You see what I did there? So let's close today's show with a letter from Mike's Fake Mailbag. Mike's Fake Mailbag. We don't even have a jingle. We'd answer real letters from fans if we had any. So instead, today's fake letter comes from Sue Donimus. Wink. And Sue writes, great episode today. Real classy. Thank you, Sue. She adds, Mike, you've gotten so sick and you've been in so many dangerous places. Aren't you afraid you'll die on one of these trips? Thanks for your fake letter, Sue. The answer is no. I'm not scared I might die on one of these trips. I'm absolutely certain I will die on one of these trips. The only question is how. Here are some near misses. We were in Pyeongchang, South Korea, a tiny summer resort that somehow wound up hosting the Winter Olympics. This was a huge event, and this small, onion-growing town was not quite up to the challenge. We attended the opening ceremony sitting in the frigid outdoor arena for four hours. It ended at midnight, and 70,000 attendees poured into the parking lot to find three buses. We waited in the freezing cold as the bus ferried people away 90 at a time. 
Around 3 a.m. it was our turn to ride the bus. Actually, it wasn't our turn. We elbowed our way through the crowd and cut the line. We were freezing and we were New Yorkers. The bus drove for 20 minutes and dumped us in the middle of nowhere, 10 miles outside of town. The Koreans had no plan. They were just leaving tourists there to die. We were on Pakistan Airlines flight from LA to Lahore when a flight attendant handed me the local paper. The cover story from the previous day was, Pakistan Airlines flight from LA to Lahore crashes with no survivors. Ethiopia is a gorgeous country with an exceptionally mild climate. That's because all its villages are built on high plateaus accessible only by steep, crumbling dirt roads. Every day in every village I could look out the window of my tour bus and see another tour bus lying wrecked upside down at the bottom of a ravine. Finally, we took a trip to the Sudan, which up until recently had been a war zone. And while we were there, a bomb went off in a dumpster outside our New York home. So you see, you're not really safe anywhere. We survived all that. We even survived that snake in the toilet in Uganda. But somehow, somewhere, I will die on one of these trips. And my life will flash before my eyes, all 130 countries parading before me. It'll be just like the It's a Small World ride. Now that scares me. Mike's fake mailbag We still don't have a jingle What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, featuring Denise Reese as herself Additional voices by Trevor Morris Mike's funny doorman Mike's fake mailbag jingle was written by Mike Reese and performed by Jeff Martin and Samantha Martin